You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. So I did not do another position group today. So instead, I took aim at a few other questions that I've got lingering out there, which, of course, opened up doors to new opportunities and things to explore and spreadsheets to play with. It's a glorious life. But there were a few questions out there. The number one question that I wanted to address was, since I did tight ends yesterday, where would I put Jay Sternberger? And I thought that was a very good question. And then I went from there and I thought, you know what else is a very good question? Where would I put Jamon Moore, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Equinemia St. Brown on this list of wide receivers? Since that's becoming kind of a big thing. Like, why don't we just wait for MVS to step up or EQ? I like Equinemia's. And then I thought, well, why don't we just also address linebackers since I also did my top 20 list of linebackers. So I compared, I I put Ty Summers and Oren Burks, not Blake, that was a very long time ago. I actually did try to go back and find some Blake film and couldn't. I'm sure it's circulating out there somewhere, but um, Oren Burks and Ty Summers on my list of linebackers. So I did that. I also had a question. By the way, if you if you have a question, you can put it in the Facebook group. I do have a uh, running thread in the uh, Facebook group, a question, general question post asking for ideas on the show. Uh, if you can find that, that's where I'm pulling a lot of this stuff from, um, especially when I get into these projects and whatnot. But one of the questions um, that is in that big pile of questions that I will be getting to that I thought would be kind of fun to play with is what is the correlation between great combine results, specifically the Wonderlick test, and the likelihood of being an above-average player? Now, I'm, this is one of those things where I'm just scratching the surface. So, of course, because I'm me, and I have to do everything to the extreme, which is why sometimes these questions take a long time to get to, especially when they're project ones, because I want to do it right, I put together a list of um, over 11,000 players from 2019 back to 1987 with all of their... Um, measurements, their height, their weight, their arm length, their hand size, 40 time, 20 yard shuttle, 60 yards, all of it. And it does include the Wonderlick. Obviously not everybody does that. It's mostly quarterbacks, but so now I have the ability to kind of play with it and I'll be looking at doing other things. If you have questions regarding this massive database that I now have, please feel free to ask it, but I want to at least start here. And uh, so that's that's where I'm going to be starting. That is all I really have. If we still have some time, I'll touch on a few other things. But that's generally what we're going to do today. 
If you're not yet in the Packernet Podcast Facebook group, please make sure to do that. It shouldn't be all that hard to find. I have a feeling if you type Packernet Podcast into the search on Facebook, I feel like it'll probably pop up. If not, the page will probably pop up, and you should like that anyways. Thank you very much to Clayton and Chris for jumping in on Patreon. I believe we are up to 83 patrons. We only need 17 more. It feels like it's a lot, but there are literally thousands of people listening, and I have a feeling 17 of you are at least on the fence. Again, if you appreciate the show and you think it would be worth it to spare a dollar, I would encourage you to check out patreon.com slash pack underscore daddy or go to Patreon and, and search whatever. Packernet Podcast, you can search Packers, you can search NFL, you can search NFL Draft. I just tried it. Pretty easy to manipulate the uh, the search function on Patreon, and I am at the top of all those lists. So you should be able to find me pretty easily, and that would be greatly appreciated. Again, um, I've been using, I use a lot of this money. I have signed up for the first time for a lot of different draft things. Uh, I signed up for ESPN Plus. I'm going to get Matt Waldman's, um, you know, his draft portfolio, two or three other draft portfolios. I've got Over the Cap premium subscription, spot track premium subscription. Uh, it helps pay for Game Pass, which is $100 a year. Uh, my PFF subscription is $200 a year. And uh, the patrons have been helping me pay for that stuff for for a while now, and I very much appreciate that. But this is not a super cheap endeavor. It used to be, back when I wasn't making any money for two years, and I had to pay for hosting and pay for Game Pass and all that stuff. It was, it was a little, it was brutal for a while there. But again, the more I get, the more I want to pump back into the show. And if you wouldn't mind considering it, I would be very appreciative. Also contemplating the draft network, but I don't really see the purpose of that. What I really want them to do, which I think they said they were going to do, but I don't think they've done it yet, is for them to basically do like a multiplayer draft thing. As soon as they do any kind of like multiplayer, in other words, me and 32 people from the Packernet group can get together and do a mock draft, each picking a team, I'm paying whatever they want. Because that would be amazing. But I don't think they have that yet. Anyways, I think that's about it. If you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and review somewhere out there in the interwebs for the podcast, I'd be grateful. I'd be grateful. That would be great. But why don't we take a break and start getting into some stuff. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now... Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Folks, if you haven't figured out what it is you want to do this spring and you feel like you need a little bit of a break, and I know you do, I would encourage you to contemplate going to Arizona for the Cactus League Spring Training and follow 15 baseball teams as they all converge in Arizona to simply make your life better. What are they doing there? Yeah, it's kind of to practice. Technically, it's called spring training, but really they're just, they're just there to make your vacation awesome. We're just going to fly down there, sign some autographs, entertain the people before they go off and enjoy Arizona. That's really what it is, if we're being honest. 
So if you are a giant baseball fan, this should definitely at least be on your bucket list. And I don't know what you're waiting for to knock this one off the list. When you're done with that, you can go out and visit some amazing restaurants, enjoy some live music, go out to museums like the Native Heritage or Modern Art Museum. And of course, there's a ton of family-friendly stuff. They got wildlife parks, science museums, aquariums, dude ranches, whatever. So if you're at least somewhat interested, why don't you just go to visitarizona.com slash springtraining and go check it out. So first of all, I want to pay tribute. I know he wasn't anybody's favorite player, but uh, fairly longtime Green Bay Packer Devon House has decided to hang up the cleats. He was a fourth-round pick for the Green Bay Packers back in 2011. Six-foot-tall, 195-pound corner out of New Mexico State running a 4-4-4. Played five total years with the Green Bay Packers with two years in, in Jacksonville in between in 2015 and 16. His best year via PFF was actually his rookie year. That was his best year in coverage, according to grade. Second best year as a pass rusher. Best year in overall defensive grade. In terms of his um, his stats, he ended with seven interceptions, 41 pass breakups, an overall passer rating of 95.9 when targeted. I guess if I could put it in the nicest terms possible to, uh, to be polite in a send-off. In an era that was very dark for a lot, for a lot of, of uh, Packer fans as far as defensive back play goes, Devon House was at least somewhat of a consistent player in that. Devon House was exactly that guy that you never really wanted to be a starting corner. But at the end of the day, things would go so terribly. When House went out there, you were at least saying, all right, yeah, just put House out, I guess. Right? Like, <laughs> everybody's so bad. Like, just just put him back out there. I, I, I can't take this anymore. You feel a little bit comfortable. Not comfortable, but a little bit comfortable. More so than the other guy that was just standing there a minute ago. And if you think I'm being mean, let me also remind you that he is three years younger than me at the age of 30 years old, and he raked in total cash money $18,685,705. You could just rip off the $18 million and this guy's made more money than I will probably make before I'm 50. <laughs> it's just maybe not quite that dramatic, but um, I would say he's doing fine. So best of luck to Devon House. Thanks for trying to keep things from going super horrible for the Green Bay Packers for several years. Also one of those unfortunate guys that came to Green Bay right after we won the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Like, he came at the prime, like, peak Green Bay Packers. They're this unstoppable force in 2011. Same year as Randall Cobb came on board, like, just won the Super Bowl. Go 15-1 and in that first year. It's like, there's no way we're not going to win a Super Bowl. And he was a part of some really good defenses. I mean, just it just felt like everything was going to go right. And then it went very wrong. <laughs> but again, he's doing fine. He'll be he'll be just fine. All right, so again, I, I decided what I would do. And the, the really good thing, again, this is somewhat new to me. I, I very closely follow the draft, but I'm not one of those guys that generally likes to call himself a scout. I don't do that. I, I like to watch and have my own opinions, but I, I, I like to stay as far away from the scout label as possible so that I can say crazy stuff and not have to feel bad about it. I can just watch and be like, yep, that's my guy. You know, he's a third rounder, right? I don't care. That's my guy. I like having that level of freedom. However, let me just give you some pointers if you want to get started, because I just did it and it's the definitely the right way to do it. Do one position at a time, grab at least 10 guys, go find, you know, I've got a board, go find anybody's board, go to the draft network, Grab their top 10 at a position, top 20, whatever. Start at the bottom, because if you start at the top, that, that's the problem. I start with a guy like Chase Young or Jerry Judy, 
and you hear that this is the craziest person at this position ever, and then the first play they don't get a sack, and it's like I don't get it. I don't. I don't know what's so great. I mean, the the tackle held him. He couldn't get off the tackle. Why is he so great? Because you just have this overinflated view of how good somebody is. Start at the bottom. Find out what a you know the the tenth guy down the list is probably going to get drafted in like the fifth round, fourth round, or something. So you start there and then work your way up and you begin to see the massive difference in how good some of these first-round guys are. Also, try to do them all in a day if you can because even going back, the reason I'm saying this is one day later, I'm watching Jason. I'm like, man, where would I put him? And I kind of need a little bit of a refresher even after one day. Now, granted, if I sat and watched four, five, six, seven games of these guys and took detailed notes and burned it into my brain, I'd probably remember a little better. But it would be way too hard especially if you're going across positions and trying to do multiple things. Like, just stick with one position so you can kind of get all that stuff, you know, just you, you remember it better. But that was my one kind of struggle was trying to go back and remember. And then I was like, all right, I kind of remember, like, you know, using my notes, I kind of remember, but I need to go see it to kind of compare. And so I had to watch a little bit extra. But just just try it. I think it's fun. But starting with Jace, I really wanted to believe he would be the top guy. Because I know I really like Jace. And I didn't put this much effort into last year's draft class. But I did, I kind of started from the top and kind of worked down just so I knew what the top prospects looked like. This year I'm determined to have a top 20 at every position with the exception of punter and kicker and long snapper because I don't care. But I know I really like Jace. And so I watched Jace first and I remember thinking, yeah, this guy is, this, this guy is definitely special. But as I went and watched the top guys from this year's class, I had to be a little bit honest. He wasn't the top guy. And so I knew I wasn't going to put him quite where I have Hopkins, who is my number one. And I wanted to see, could I put him where Bryant is? And the fact of the matter is, and here's the other thing, and this is why the combine is going to be important. I'm going to have to tweak my rankings after the combine. So I really got to get my act together as far as getting my top 20s before the combine. But I know what Jace ran. And what he ran is a 475. That's not that fast. That's pretty standard for an average tight end. And the resource I'm using for what the average tight end is, I don't know if that's... Because, you know, Jace is a receiving tight end. So if you take all the guys who are expected to, you know, they're not a great blocker, but you're expected to be a, a receiving type, I tend to believe that that's actually probably lower than a 4.75. So I'm watching Hopkins, I'm watching Bryant, and Bryant just seems a lot faster. So I would say Jace is similar to my number two tight end, Hunter Bryant. And here's the other thing. Jace is a lot bigger than these guys. Of my of my top uh, top three or four guys, the biggest is Bryson Hopkins, who's my number one at 240, 6'4", 241. Jay Sternberger is 6'4", 251. So if Bryson Hopkins runs a 4.75, I've got some reevaluating to do. Because essentially Bryson Hopkins and Jay Sternberger are similar. I still think Hopkins is a better receiver, possibly a better blocker, but I actually think Jace was underrated as a blocker compared to these guys at least. But he's 10 pounds heavier? I don't know. And same with Hunter Bryant. He's 6'2", 239. But he better run like a 4-6 or something, because that's the whole point is he's really fast. And so when I saw that and I thought receiving ability is the most important thing, I decided Bryson Hopkins and Hunter Bryant were probably a little bit better. But I definitely was going to wanted to put him third above Cole Komet. But when I went back and watched Cole, after having watched Jace, and I remember thinking Cole is not that fast, I still think he might actually be faster than Jace. And you look at that kind of ability to... To separate where his routes don't look super clean, but he does a really good job of being able to create separation. 6'4", 235, so his, it, it kind of makes sense that he would be relatively fast. So at the end of the day, I decided that I do like him more than, and I don't have my list in front of me, but I like him more than my number four. So I would put Jace number four 
on my list of tight ends this year. And I don't know where he would have been last year because I didn't officially do this, but I do remember saying I liked him more than Noah Fant, which most people think was crazy. I just wasn't that a huge Noah Fant fan. He's fine. He's really fast. I just I wasn't as big of a fan of a lot as a lot of people were. But that's where I would have put Jace. Now again, if, if Cole Komet ends up running a four seven five, I'm probably gonna put Jace number three. So going back and looking at Ty Summers, part of the problem with Ty Summers is that again with linebackers, you've got guys that typically are, are run defenders and guys that are, you know, cover guys. Very rarely until you get into the upper rounds, you find guys that can do both. But a lot of the lower level guys are really bad in coverage. That's not the case with Ty Summers. Ty Summers, although he wasn't very good in coverage, in my opinion, he showed an, a ridiculous amount of speed at times. There was one play in particular when I just about wrote him off, and I'm like, dude, this is one of the worst tight ends I've watched. Sorry, linebackers I've watched. There's a ball that comes out, and he runs so fast to get there and just smoke this guy. I was like, holy cow, where did that come from? But it's it's kind of like, how do how, where do you rank him amongst a lot of guys that are subpar against the run and can't cover whereas ty summers is mediocre to subpar as a cover guy i mean he's fast but it doesn't mean he did a good job of covering anybody and is maybe the worst tackler i've ever seen in my life with the exception possibly of warren burks (laughs) but he just i mean he wasn't a very good tackler he's not great in coverage although he's fast and he just doesn't tackle well and he can't get off blocks so ultimately out of 19 guys which is the 18 that i have plus ty summers he would be 15 out of 19 which I guess kind of jives with being a seventh-round pick, but that's where I would have put him. Um, Oren Burks, basically the exact same kind of guy, just a little bit better. I actually liked him in coverage a little bit more. Not just fast, but you look at you know linebackers and tight ends kind of sneaking out, and he would ride, run stride for stride with them, which is, that's coverage, right? Not just being really fast in flashes, but actually being able to stick with somebody stride for stride. But again, the tackling, I mean, watching Oren Burks tackle is like watching me try to tackle a Ford Taurus. Like, it just, he just smacks into it, doesn't tackle him, and just looks like he's dead. You know, like I had mentioned, some of these guys, they've just got raw power in their bodies. It's not even about how big you are. You got 230-pound guys like, you know, Weaver, who's, I don't know, 235 maybe. And just when there's a collision, he doesn't move backwards, which is incredible. Because you would think just the basic laws of physics, you have to go backwards. When you got a 220-pound running back coming at a full head of steam and you're just standing there, trying to stop a guy from converting a third and one, and you can stand him straight up and drive him back like, jeez. Oren Burks is the exact opposite of that. So for me, if Oren Burks were in this draft class, I would have put him 11th out of 19, and only in front of Batchy and Weaver because coverage is more important than run defense as much as I hate saying that out loud because I like big, strong, physical, mean linebackers to be enforcers in the middle of the field, and putting a guy like Oren Burks who just gets... Mac truck run over all the time to me isn't even a linebacker this is this is a, a corner that stands in the middle of the field but that's today's nfl so i will put him ahead of of batchy and weaver even though i just i would much rather have a weaver my team wouldn't be as good but i'll, I'll take weaver but anyways that's where i would put him if i were to rank him properly is 11th out of 19th it also is kind of interesting going back because there's definitely a prototype looking at the packers type of of linebacker now I don't think not being able to tackle is something that they put in their notes, like make sure this guy can't tackle. But there's no question what the most important thing is. Like you got a Petten and Gutekunst getting together, and the scouts are coming together looking at it like, look, this Oren Burks guy, he can cover, but he can't tackle. And Petten and, and Gutekunst look over and go, did you say he can cover? Yes, but I also said he can't tackle. Don't care. Draft him. Let's, let's put him up there. If we need to trade up, let's trade up. I mean, I, I said he can't tackle, though. Remember that part? 
really soft. I feel it. Nope. Shut your mouth. Thank you for your patronage. Get out of my house. Like, being able to cover is A, number one, the most important thing. And in reality, if you think about it, the last time they took a guy that was just a, a stout, you know, tackling machine, big, strong, Evan Weaver type guy was four years ago when they took Blake. That was 2016. That was a while ago. Since then, they've only drafted two linebackers, and they were both just these small, fast cover guys. So that definitely is the new prototype for for the NFL in general, but for the Green Bay Packers, they've bought into that hook, line, and sinker. So hopefully they go early enough in the draft this year that they can get a guy that can cover, but also has at least a little bit of thump to him, because those guys do exist. Kenneth Murray. Anyways, uh, looking at the wide receivers, I forgot. MVS I didn't do because I couldn't find anything. I mean, there's highlight reels, but that's not a right way to do this because he's going to be overinflated and look better than he was. But uh, Jamon Moore, his whole thing coming out is that he's a pretty good route runner, and he is decent enough. He's not a top-tier route runner, but he was you know, somewhat sharp enough to at least make one cut and get a, a, a half a step of separation. But usually that came with, you know, when there's a lot of cushion, he kind of just... You know, there's, it's not that impressive when you got 10 yards of cushion and you run a slant route and you're open. Because, duh. When it's man-to-man press coverage, I don't think he got a ton of separation. And one of the biggest issues with Jamon Moore is that he was a serial body catcher. Whenever that ball was in the air, he wanted to catch it with his chest. And so I, I did put him in the potential tier as a guy that could potentially be a good football player. But I put him at the very bottom of that list. Overall, I had him 13th out of 21. And then Equinemius, interestingly enough, I wanted to put him in that same tier because I did see the potential. You know, he looks a lot faster. Maybe not as safe as Jamon Moore, but you can see the upside. Plus, of course, the speed and the height and everything else. So you, you got to at least put him in the potential tier. But looking back at Justin Jefferson, who I was very low on, maybe I'll reevaluate that because a lot of people have him mocked in the first round. I just, I can clearly see he's not as good as Justin Jefferson. So I didn't want him as high as Justin Jefferson, but he's better than Jamon. So I have Jamon at 13th and I have Equinemius at 12th. So that is where I would have all these guys ranked, which isn't all that surprising. We didn't invest a lot in linebackers, and we know they're not very good linebackers, so the fact that our linebackers weren't ranked very high is not that surprising. It's a stacked wide receiver class, so it's not even necessarily a knock on our wide receiver, because if it were a lesser wide receiver class, they'd be relatively higher. And then for tight end, I mean, it's a pretty weak class. Um, I'm actually surprised that I only had Jace fourth. I really thought he would be first or second. But again, we'll, we'll see what happens after the combine. If these guys end up being a lot slower or whatever, then, then they'll end up getting dropped. Because a lot of this stuff in the notes is seems fast. But we, we need to get some verification on that. Anyways, let's turn our attention now to the question, which I'll restate once again. What is the correlation between great combine results, specifically the Wonderlick test, and the likelihood of being an above-average player? So, again, I, I could spend a lot of time on this, and I will be spending more time because this is very interesting, and you can attack this from different angles, right? One way to do this, and it was the way I was thinking about doing this, is just take the top players and then look at their attributes. I'm going to today come at it from the other aspect and look at some of the top attributes and say, okay, how good are these players? And let me, let me just give you the conclusion up front and then try to verify it. I think with just about every single attribute, there are two things. Most attributes serve as floors more than ceilings. And what I mean by that is it's not so much that if you run a 4-2 or if you get a, a Wonderlick score of 30 or whatever that you're going to be amazing. But there is sort of a line where if you're below this line, there's a good chance you're not going to be very good. So I'm less concerned about somebody running a 4-2 as opposed to a 4-3 
as I am with a wide receiver who maybe runs like a 4-6. Like, if you don't crack that, it's like, all right, you seem fine, but I'm now I'm worried. Because that might just be too low. So it's less about everybody over this bar is amazing and more about everybody under this bar is off the board. Now, the other attribute is, if you go to the tippy tops, however, you can find maybe where the elite players are. So in other words, just think about it from this perspective. The best of the best usually have some pretty top-end attributes. So just because you have an elite attribute doesn't mean you're going to be great. But if you look at the greats, a lot of them tend to have elite attributes. You know, Calvin Johnson was an absolute monster of a human being and I think ran in the four threes. Now, we know guys, we have guys on our team that are very tall and ran in the four threes like MVS. He's not Calvin Johnson because, again, it's not predictive. However, if you work in reverse, you tend to have... Think about it from this perspective. Good receivers are good receivers. Devontae Adams is a good receiver. But imagine if instead of Devontae being 6'1 and running in the 4'5", if he was 6'4 and ran in the 4'3s. I tend to think Devontae would be elevated from top, you know, top 10, top 5 receiver to one of the greats. It just elevates it, right? There's great receivers, and then there's great receivers with really high attributes who end up being some of the greatest of all time. So that's kind of where we're at with this. So we'll start with Wonderlick to kind of... Um, that was what the question was specifically. So we'll start there and kind of try to prove out what I was just saying. So on my little database thing here, I have got 218 quarterbacks who have Wonderlick scores because a lot of people just don't take it, especially if you are not a quarterback, then hardly anybody does. And there are some non-quarterbacks that have taken it, but I'm just going to relegate it to quarterbacks because I think you find this correlation more. For example, Kelvin Benjamin has one of the lowest Wonderlick scores of anybody. Pretty good wide receiver, right? Tavon Austin, Chance Womack, Sheldon Richardson. These are very good football players. DeForest Buckner. In fact, Garrett Bowles. I mean, these are very good. A.J. Green. So I, I don't think there's as much of a you know, it's, it's sort of like 40 time for an offensive guard. Who cares? But with quarterback, there is more of a question of your ability to process information. So kind of arbitrarily, I set the bar at about 20 for the Wonderlick score. Now, there are decent quarterbacks who are below this. I don't think there's anybody below 14, but there's almost nobody at a quarterback position that has scored less than a 14. Again, out of 218 quarterbacks... Only 10 have ever gotten lower than a 14. So 14 is about as low as there's ever been. And you've got really good quarterbacks like Donovan McNabb who got that. Vince Young, who, I mean, I don't know if he was that good. Dante Culpepper. These are good quarterbacks. So you can't say that because you got a lower score, you're not going to be a good quarterback because that isn't true. However, I do think there's a slight correlation to where if you're at least below a 14, which is very rare, you should consider double-checking your notes a little bit. Now, again, there is that extra element of great quarterback. Now, if you think Donovan McNabb is one of the greats, then this completely just washes everything away because, again, he got a 14, but I don't think he is. I was looking for elite quarterbacks and went to PFF and said you actually have to have elite grades. Donovan McNabb never had a grade, I don't think, in the 80s, which is very good. It's not even elite. And the question is, what makes an elite quarterback? What is the lowest score of an elite quarterback? Now, granted, there are very there's a very limited sample size, but the lowest grade of any quarterback, and there again, this goes back quite a ways, so maybe I'm missing somebody, but I don't think so. The lowest grade of anybody that you could consider an elite quarterback is Patrick Mahomes, who got a score of 24, which isn't bad. 
So under 24, there's some very good quarterbacks, some starter caliber quarterbacks, but nobody that you would consider an elite quarterback. You know, uh, David Carr, Derek Carr, Tim Couch, Cam Newton. The one that almost threw me was Deshaun Watson because Deshaun Watson is quite good, but he's never once gotten an elite grade. Maybe if that changes, that changes the whole dynamic. He's been in the 80s, but even Deshaun was at 20, so you look at it and say nobody under 20 has ever crossed that marker. But if we continue on and look at some of these elite quarterbacks, or at least look at the people who are at or near the top, Big Ben, 25, the great Josh Booty, 27, Joe Flacco, I don't ever think was elite, but 27, we'll throw that in there, Drew Brees, 28, Russell Wilson, 28, Carson Wentz, 29. I don't know if he ever crossed that threshold. I didn't check, but it would have been close. Philip Rivers, who had several years in the elite category but never got any credit for it, was a 30. Matt Ryan, 32. Tom Brady, 33. Cousins was actually pretty close this year, 33. Ryan Tannehill cracked it this year. Maybe you don't want to put him in there, but he fits the criteria, 34. Andrew Luck, 37. Matt Stafford, 38. Eli, 39. Aaron Rodgers, 39. And then the highest ever is actually Ryan Fitzpatrick, who had a 48. And again, th- this is this is one of those things where you look at it and say, okay, well, if, if Wonderlick makes you a great quarterback, then the guys with the highest should be the best. Here are all the guys over 40. Alex Smith, Daryl Hackney, Sean Mannion, Ryan Nassib, Blaine Gabbert, Jason Moss, Greg McElroy, and Ryan Fitzpatrick. So it doesn't make you a great quarterback, but what I'm saying is it can elevate a really good quarterback into an elite quarterback. Because a lot of the... the, the position is mental processing. So I think that fits the same criteria as 40-yard dash, vertical leap, broad jump. You set a line and say anything under this, I'm concerned, but you don't say they have the highest wonderlick or the fastest 40, therefore they must be great. And so that's my general thought on how this stuff works. But let's look at a few other things. 40-yard dash times. Again, doesn't make you bad, but it doesn't automatically make you great. Uh, There are 20 players who have run under a 4-3. I'll just list them off and you tell me how great. Some of them are some of the great. And again, if you want to find a guy who's very good and elevate him into one of the best of all time, running a 4-2 isn't going to hurt. But there are some garbage players in this list. Jay Hinton, running back. Johnny Knox, believe he played for the Bears. He was never very good. Deion Sanders, one of the greatest of all time. We talked about it in the contract. Highest paid player ever. Adjusted for cap dollars. Highest paid player ever. Josh Robinson, cornerback, don't even know who he is. Corey Grant, running back. Mike Wallace, quality receiver, ran a 4-2-8. Not elite elite, but he was good. J.J. Nelson, I think he's a cardinal, or at least was. Never really materialized into anything that great. Champ Bailey, phenomenal corner. Jalen Merrick, cornerback out of Minnesota. Stephen Hill, wide receiver. Marquise Goodwin, decent, but not super great. C.J. Spiller, ton of hype. I think he had a really good rookie year, and everyone thought he was going to be one of the greats, and he just kind of fell off. Jerome Mathis, Dre Archer. I remember when Dre Archer ran, it was a huge deal. I was like, this guy is a freak. He never really went on to do anything. Um, Darius Hayward Bay, again, he's one of those guys that if you had him, you picked him up in fantasy because he'd have a really big day. Right, he got that 70-yard touchdown, got a ton of points. You pick him up, he wouldn't do anything for the rest of the year. Because 4-2-5 is really all he was. So he never really turned into that great of a receiver. Uh, Demarcus Van Dyke, cornerback, also ran a 4-2-5. Rondell Mondez, East Kentucky wide receiver back in 1999, ran a 4-2-4. In 2010, Jacoby Ford out of Clemson ran a 4-2-2. 
In 2017, John Ross, wide receiver out of Washington, ran a 4-2-2. And in 2010, Trendon Holiday, wide receiver, ran a 4-2-1. So again, running in the 4-2s doesn't make you an elite player. Most of these guys are not very good. But if you're going to be one of the greatest of all time, this definitely helps. But really, the important thing is the guys on the other end of the spectrum. For example, the first wide receiver I can find listed here is Jeff Graham, although after looking into it, I think he was a quarterback, and actually a quarterback the Packers drafted. So if we continue on, the next worst wide receiver that I can find that's officially a wide receiver is Alan Boshma. Boshma ran a 4.98. Not surprisingly, I can't find the team that drafted him. Wonder why. And so it's actually interesting as I'm looking at this, there are certain markers, and I think every team has their own markers, and we kind of know this, but I really think that's a big part of it. We always hear that the combine, the biggest thing is the the uh, medicals, right? That's the most important thing. We want to check you out, make sure that everything's where it's supposed to be, and you don't have any structural damage and everything else, and we got to be th- very thorough. But I think the second most important thing is we set these bars, and if you fall below the bar, you know, we, we got to investigate, you know, did, did you hurt your ankle? Did, do you got a bum knee or, you know, did you not sleep? What's going on here? And if we can't figure anything out, we, we cross you off the list. So it's funny because this site that I'm looking at here where I actually got the database from, they've got a list of wide receiver success factors. And surprisingly enough, it's nothing but a bunch of bars. You have to be above this. So what the number one thing they have, better than a 4-6 40-yard dash time. If you run after a 4-6, and this is one of the things I want to do with this database, is find these lines. Specifically for the Packers, what lines do they like? But overall, what are these lines? And it looks like this site may have done it for me. But better than a 4-6 40-yard dash time. Better than a 120-inch broad jump. Better than or equal to a 7-second three-cone drill time. Taller than 5-9. So if you're below any of these bars you basically just get your name crossed off and i promise you anybody that's a wide receiver running a 498 will not get drafted they're not even going to bother so to answer the question i think that's essentially what it is is there a direct correlation it's probably a line that goes up but very gradually what it is is below this mark is nobody is going to do well above this mark you might find some of the greats but really, it's just a metric of please be better than this, right? Under a 4640, you're going to find some great receivers, and they run the full spectrum from 421 to 459. And even that isn't a guarantee because the greatest wide receiver of all time, arguably, Jerry Rice, ran a 471. So again, none of this is, is guaranteed. It's about do your due diligence, get good receivers where you find them. And don't worry too much, right? That, that's what the combine is all about. Somebody runs in the four twos and it's like, I want them. Yeah, but they're probably going to be pretty bad though, right? I mean, but but they're not good is the problem. Because being a good wide receiver is about being a good wide receiver. It's not about your 40 time. So again, the interesting thing is, where do we find these markers? And also really, it's it's comparing, each one is sort of individual, right? T. Higgins running a four five five compared to Jerry Judy running a four five five have completely opposite effects. Because part of the appeal of Jerry Judy is that he's blazing fast. That's maybe not his top attribute, but if he runs a 4.55, everyone's going to say this is a nightmare and he's going to fall. If T. Higgins runs a 4.55, he's probably going to get a bump. Because the whole thing with him is please run a 4.6. And if he runs a 4.49, if he breaks the the mold of the the 4.45, he gets an even bigger jump. And it would never happen, but if T. Higgins runs faster than Jerry Judy, it would be really dumb in my opinion, but you could make an argument, somebody would make an argument T. Higgins should go ahead of Jerry Judy. It would be a terrible argument to make, 
but the the point is it's 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 also somewhat individualized. You're kind of comparing their numbers to what you expect them to do. If your appeal is that you're very fast and shifty and you run a 455 and your 3 cone is just, you know, I don't know, garbage, we've got some more investigating to do because that's the reason we want to draft you. You're fast and you're shifty. KJ Hamler. All right, if he runs a, a 458 with a 763 cone, which would never happen, but I'm just saying, suddenly guess what? He's not draftable. And that would be sort of the difference between KJ Hamler and say DK Metcalf. DK Metcalf his 40 time, I think, meant a little bit more than his three cone because nobody expected his three cone to be very good. I'm sure it hurt him a little bit and dropped him a little bit because it's concerningly bad. But at the same time, the things that we want DK Metcalf to do, we know that he can do. We measured his height. We know what his wingspan is. His speed is a lot faster than even we thought. And so the things that we pegged him to do, he's going to come in and do X, Y, and Z. Guess what? He can do all those things. So he still went high and he's still pretty dominant not as high as a lot of people wanted they wanted the Packers to take him at 12 some people did but still he didn't fall out of the draft because he had a historically bad three cone because at the end of the day Seattle just said you know what good enough for what we need him for good enough so again that's another complexity that makes it hard to just say you know the arrow goes straight up for 40 time or whatever else depends on each depends on the position depends on what specifically your role is are you a slot receiver are you an x are you y z like a wide receiver, tight end hybrid, tight end, H-back, fullback. What are you expected to do? So in general, the answer to the question would be not really. It's too complex to say that there's any direct correlation between these things. But again, draw a line, anything below it is problematic. After that, the most important thing is your film study. Is he a good receiver? Is he a good offensive guard? What are the attributes we like about him? And as such, what are the markers we expect him to hit? I think he's going to be able to do this in this time, this in this time. I think he's going to be able to bench this much, which I know people say it doesn't super matter, but if you're an offensive tackle and you bench, you know, four reps, people are going to be concerned. And as long as they hit the markers that you set for that particular individual, again, T. Higgins, K.J. Hamler, different set of expectations. And, and you know, K.J. is going to absolutely annihilate the combine. T. Higgins is not. But the thing is, a lot of people are going to look at it and say, well, therefore, KJ's better. No, because it depends what the expectations were. If somebody thinks T. Higgins is better than KJ Hamler, and they both just meet expectations, just because KJ Hamler was way better in the combine, nothing changes. Everybody stays exactly where they were. I'm probably over-explaining this, but th- this is kind of just my thoughts on what the combine means, aside from just being a very, very exciting spectacle. And it is, and I'm, I'm beyond excited for it. And the, uh, the actual on-field work, it looks like, starts Thursday, February 27th. So it's only about two weeks away. So very, very excited. And day one is tight ends, quarterbacks, and wide receivers. So we get to see one of our positions of need day one. Day two, kickers, special teams people, which I don't know. Are there people that show up that are just special team or what, like long snappers? Uh, offensive linemen, running backs. So we get to watch some of our offensive linemen. That's another thing I need to do. I think I want to do defensive tackle and then offensive tackle. Day three, we get defensive line and linebacker, so that's going to be a big one because we need both of those. And then day four is defensive back. Not super important, but, you know, whatever. It's a combine. It's fun. So anyways, I'm going to leave it at that. Hopefully what I said was somewhat coherent. I feel like I explained it fairly well, but I, don't, I never know. It makes sense in my brain. I don't know. But that'll be something to look forward to. And if you have any more thoughts on things that you want me to look into, please relay that to me, especially now that I have this extra bit of information what would you do with it if you had it? And then just tell me so I can do it and then tell everybody else. But anyways, I'm going to leave it at that. You folks have yourselves a fantastic, what is it, Wednesday? 
Wednesday. Garbage day. Anyways, hope you enjoy it. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.